Have you ever experienced a salary freeze or a, an actual cut in your pay? For those of us who have, you, you know that there are immediate effects on almost every aspect of your life. I saw an article the other day noting that some veteran baseball players are getting some pay cuts. Uh, one player, his annual salary went from $14 million to $2 million. The other one went from $17.5 million to $10 million. We feel their pain, right? I mean, we're, we're there, right? We, we, we know how that is. Uh, I do not understand the intricacies of salaries in professional sports. Uh, I'm not attempting to attack or defend what anybody makes in professional sports. However, in this article, I was a little taken back by what one sports agent said in reference to these veteran players losing millions of dollars. This is what he said. It's really clear there's been a redistribution of how clubs are looking at veteran players. We have a clear problem in the industry of a non-competitive cancer. Like any patient with a malady, we have to address it immediately. Otherwise, it is going to get steadily worse. I would just graciously say that for any family who is actually experiencing the unmerciful impact of cancer, using cancer as a way to describe a decrease in multi-million dollar contracts is at the very least unwise. How is it that in our culture we have gotten to the point that we would even think that it is permissible to use words like that in, in discussing millions of dollars of salary. I was reading a devotional the other day, and it said that, that the discontentment with salaries among athletes, and really I guess you could say anybody, it, it all boils down to comparison. That's, that's what stirs it all. And so that, that what happens is a, a player... And his agent, they sit down and, and they start looking at the other players that are at that position. And they look at how much they make and they go, man, we, we should make that much at least. Or, or maybe we should make even more than that. Everything comes by comparison. Now, you might be thinking, look, I don't, I don't care about baseball. You know, what, what in the world is this? I have millions of dollars, so, you know, what, what does this have to do with me? About 30 years before the first multi-million dollar sports contract showed up in the world, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis said this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Our society lives and breathes, it seems, by that kind of pride, this, this drive to be better, to be above the other person. Now, you still may be saying... I don't know what this has to do with me because I'm not like that. I mean, I, I'm not trying to, to get a, above the other person. I mean, I'm just minding my own business. I'm just taking care of me and mine. All right, that's, that's good. That's, that's a noble, nice thing. It's, it's worthy of respect. It's just, it's just not Christian. 
It's, it's not Christian to just avoid trying to be above the rest. In fact, the call of the gospel, in a sense, actually calls us to get below the rest. It's a completely different call. So how do we get below the rest? Well, well, you need to move. You need to move out. What does that mean? Does that mean you need to go home and start packing up that limited edition collection of hamburger, hamburger glasses that you got at McDonald's? Yeah, get, it, get everything packed up, take it home? No, that's not what it means. Moving out is, is a different kind of moving out. What kind of moving out? Well, let's see if we can find out. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Paul's writing to his friends in this place called Philippi. He's, he's wanting them to, to catch a glimpse of some principles necessary for being a healthy church. Why does a church need to be healthy? David Platt said this, the word church comes from a Greek word that, that means an assembly of called out ones. It denotes that before a church can ever actually gather, the people must first hear the call to do so. So how does a, a group of people hear the, the call to be a church? Well, Paul was writing to the church at Rome and he was quoting the prophet Joel and he said this, Romans 10 verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will, will be saved. That's, that's great news. But then Paul goes in to ask a question. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So you can't be a, a called out one unless you believe. And you can't believe a called out, can't be a called out believer unless you've heard the gospel. And from the beginning until now, the only way you hear the gospel is if someone or if a group of people are preaching the gospel. Platt goes on. Churches are built through the fervent, faithful proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. Therefore, it's the responsibility of the local church to be a mouthpiece of Christ, calling all who would come to repentance and new life. Holland Avenue Baptist Church has been called to be a, a mouthpiece of Christ. Not, not just me, but He has called the, the whole church to be a mouthpiece of Christ. One of the reasons we prayerfully are, are taking church membership with such, such prayerful importance is, is because of this truth. We're, we're using the language of the Bible to look at what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to be a, a part of his church. And what we see there is that that, that kind of demands that if you're going to be a member of a church, you have to have a, a love and a respect for God. And you have to have a love and a respect for Jesus. And you have to have a love and a respect for the Holy Spirit. You have to have a love and respect for the church. You have to have a love and respect for the leaders of the church. You have to have a love and respect for the members of the church. You have have to have a love and respect for lost people outside of the church. These are things that mark us. And if we do not have that love and that respect, it affects the mouthpiece. See, our message gets murky here and outside of here. We are the mouthpiece of Christ, all of us, 
Not just one or two of us, but all of us. If your intentions are to only be a Christmas and Easter only member of the church, then then you're hindering and hurting yourself and you're hindering and hurting the health of the mouthpiece of Christ. How? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering. For he who promised, he's faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Love that. How do do we stimulate one one another toward love and good deeds? Listen in verse 25. By not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We ain't taking attendance in here on Sunday morning. But, but we want you here. See, we don't want you to be a, an Easter and Christmas only Christian. We, we want you here. Because what we're doing is we're trying to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds in a world that is not full of love and good deeds. We want it to start here. We want to fuel each other here. See, we want you here because death is real. And hell is real. And terror is real. And horror is real. And stress is real, and anxiety is real, and fear is real, and worry is real, and pride is real. See, we want you here because what we're doing is we're, we're gathering, and we're turning to that person on our left and our right going, hey, I, I saw the light. And they're going, I saw the light too. See, we're here to to help each other see that that we've seen the light and we're seeing the light, the light, the light of the world, Jesus. And the light is bright. In the midst of this dark world, we come back to remind each other the light is bright and the light is real and the light is coming again to make all things new and to make all things right. See, we, we want you here for that. Jim Albright my friend who pastors in Italy, we looked at this Wednesday night, but, but he said this. Does the biblically literate Christian have anything meaningful, cogent, and coherent to say in the face of such jaw-dropping, cataclysmic, natural upheaval as the things that we see in the world even this week? Does, does the biblically literate Christian, do we have anything to say to the darkness? Do we have anything to say to the evil? Do we have anything to say to the suffering? Do we have anything to say to the disaster? Do we have anything to say to the tragedy? And this is what he said. I would assert that the Bible-believing Christian is the only person on the planet with anything pertinent to say. And what do we have to say? We get to say, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who is the light of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who is the light of the world and He is coming back. So repent. Repent and turn to Jesus. Repent and rejoice in Jesus. And repent and rejoice because Jesus saves. And he is still saving, and he is still saving. See, we we want you here for that. We want you here as as we make much of the gospel. 
we want you to help us be a healthy gospel mouthpiece for Christ. We want you to be committed to a local church, even if it's not this one. You know, we, we want you to be committed to a local church because we believe it's good for your soul. And, and we want you to be committed to a local church because if you're not committed to a local church, if you're not dialed in, if you're not engaged, if you're not involved, not, not because of health reasons, not because of medical reasons, not because you're taking care of an aging parent. Let me just stop here for a second. So one of the reasons I think it's so important for us to listen to the words of the songs and listen to the sermon is we have no idea what's going to happen. So last week, what did I say? I said, hey, close up with this part about aging parents. And I said, hey, when the time comes for me to take care of Josie and Pat, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. It's, it's my job. So what happens? Tuesday morning, my mom falls, and they, they thought she had a mini stroke. So Tuesday night, I'm at the hospital. And I'm sitting there, and, and my mom's fine, and, and she's out, and we were sitting there talking. I was like, man, Mom, you made me live out my sermon like two days later. <laughs> but, you know, we don't know, do we? I mean, we, we don't. We don't know. So I, I just want to graciously plead with you. I, I promise I am not unnecessarily trying to create guilt or fear. I, I promise I'm not. But no one sitting in this room and no one hearing my voice is promised tomorrow morning. We're, we're just not. So if you're here today and, and, and you've already had an hour of Bible teaching in Sunday school, please don't forget it. Please love it and own it and run with it. If you're here today and you've been singing these songs with us, oh, please don't forget these words. Please, please get them and own them and, and use them. And, and this truth of the Bible that we are seeing now, grab these truths and run with them because you don't know how you'll need to apply them five minutes after you leave. We want you to be committed to local church because we think the local church helps one another and helps the world see the light of the gospel here and outside of here. So if you're not committed to local church, not because of health reasons or medical reasons or because you're taking care of aging parents, not because you, you have to, to be at work or you've got a strange work schedule and you can never be around, not because you have military responsibilities, but if you're not committed to a local church because you love brunch more, if you're not committed to a local church because you love the lake or the beach or the mountains more, if you're not committed to a local church because you love your hobbies or your friends or your me time or your sleep time or your sports more, then we would plead with you to turn from those things because you are only hurting yourself and you're hurting your family and you're hurting your friends and you are hurting your faith. And in, in a lot of ways, you're, you're hurting the church. See, we need you. We, we want you here. We want you to be a part of what we're doing because we want to be good for you and, and we want you to be good for us. Mark Dever said this, you and all the members of your church, Christian, are finally responsible before God for what your church becomes, not your pastors and other leaders, you. All of us, we're, we're all responsible for what the church becomes. 
See, we want you to take your, your membership seriously because, because we believe in the relationships we're building here. We want you to take it seriously because we think you being here and, and us being here and us being involved in life together is good for your soul and it is good for our church. Now, no church is ever going to be perfectly healthy. Not going to happen. But every church should be moving toward being healthy. So what can you do as we move toward health? Dever goes on. Pray, serve, encourage, set a good example in your own life, and be patient. A healthy church is less about a place that looks a certain way and more about a people who love in the right way. That's it. That's, that's, that's how you can help us be a good mouthpiece of Christ. Be here, be involved, be engaged, be an encourager, and do all that you can to love in the right way. That, that's what we want to do. We want to love in the right way. Will we always love in the right way? No. Will you let me down? Yes. Will I let you down? Yes. Quit being foolish and thinking that I will always be there for you or you will always be there for me. That's foolish. We will let each other down. We will fail each other. But if we are pursuing health, we will be a people we are fighting to love the right way. We are fighting to make much of Christ to each other and to a dark world. So how do we love in the right way? Well, Paul's already told us. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Please note what Paul does not say. He does not say, don't look out for your own interest. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say, blow off the important things in your life. No. He's not saying, look, just ignore your health, ignore your job, ignore your family, ignore your career, ignore your car, ignore your house, ignore your rock garden, ignore your limited connection, hamburger glasses. You just ignore all that stuff. None of it matters. I don't know about the hamburger glasses. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But what he's saying is just don't, don't get wrapped up in that. Don't, don't think that the call is that you shouldn't look out for your own interest. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, if you don't look out for your own interest, you become that guy at school. You know, the guy that doesn't wear deodorant or cologne, you know. And it's like nobody wants to be around you, you know. Or, or you're that person at work, that disheveled person, that coworker that nobody, you know, wants to sit in the cubicle next to, you know. So you need to look out for your interests a little bit, you know. Because if you don't like it, look out for your own interests, you might become that annoying neighbor, you know, or that irresponsible citizen that's causing problems and conflict with the homeowners association or the, the billing department or local law enforcement or, or county council or that girl from the Girl Scouts that you owe some money for them thin mints, you know. You don't want to be someone who doesn't look out for your own interest. It's important that you do. It's not wrong. It's wrong to only look out for your own interest. That's the picture that Paul has given us in terms of how we love the right way. This is what Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as you love your so what does that mean? I, I use this quote a lot because it's just helpful for me. John Piper says this, All the longings that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were 
me. All right, let's set this down into the baseball salary contract negotiations, all right? This is not a perfect illustration, but just, you know, run with it for a second. Imagine the the player sits down with his agent and they start comparing themselves to the other players of the other positions. And the player, as a believer, says, you know what? Jesus told me to love my neighbor in the same way I love myself. So I want the same safety and the same health and the same success and the same happiness and the same salary for that other guy as I want for myself. But that might change the way ESPN reports on sports, right? (laughs) How about that for a salary difference? Now, let me just note here, it's, it's easy for us to kind of attack the rich athlete. So let me, let me just dial it back a little bit for us, okay? Because the reality is we need to be careful that we don't sit in Starbucks spouting out our arguments for why we should get less homework. And why we should get more test credits, or why we should get more pay, or more stock options, or or more benefits. And we need to be careful about not sitting in the Cracker Barrel and spouting out our arguments about why we should get more retirement, we should get more dividends, and we we should get more government-funded health care. See, it's easy for us to cast stones at rich athletes, but it's a little more difficult for us to cast glances in our own mirror. But we have to. We have to be sure that we're drawing God's truth into us and not just applying it to others. Let me, let me step us back in the conversation, pick up where C.S. Lewis left off talking about the danger of pride. He goes on, and God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. And then he says this. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say They believe in God and appear to themselves religious. His answer, I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. Huh. So see, what he's saying is if the normal habit that your spouse and your kids see, okay, not not what we see on Sunday morning, But if the normal habit of your life, the people who are closest to you, if what they see in your life is that you look out for number one, period, that you only look out for your own interest, and you will barely, unless you are forced, look out for the interest of somebody else, and yet claim to be a Christian, it is very possible you are worshiping an imaginary God. In a sense, you're really worshiping yourself, And and we have to graciously break the news to you that you are not the way, and you are not the truth, and you are not the life. Therefore, you might be gaining your own little world, but you are losing your soul. So, So here's what the church does as the called out ones. See, we gather, and we we own all of that that we just say, but but then we say, hey, we We want to plead with you to repent. 
we want to plead with you to, to face all of the darkness in this world. You to turn your eyes upon Jesus, the light of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, we want you to embrace what it means to come up against someone who is in every respect immeasurably superior to you and then that you would be saved by him. See, that's, that's what we do as, as called out ones. We keep telling this story that the day is approaching, that the day is near. So repent and be saved. And we keep loving the fact that every morning we get up and we compare ourselves to the one who is superior, immeasurably superior in every respect. And we say, that's my God. That's what we do as called out ones. Paul is telling the Philippians that saved people serve people. Saved people, they, they serve people. A friend of mine was telling me one time, he said, you know, he said, my experience has been that when you have a, a, a huge room that is full of work to do, <laughs> it's evident. There's lots of work to do. There's lots of things to do. There's lots of needs in that room to be met. People are meeting needs. And you come in and you find the person that's running around the most, doing the most work, trying to meet the most needs, and you walk over to them and you say, so, I mean, um, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, do y'all need any help? No. No, we don't. And what he was saying was this. If you're a believer and you come and you see needs and you fiddle with your toothpick for 10 more minutes and then finally go over and ask the busiest person, hey, is there something I can do? Now, we, we probably don't need your help. Because you're not being a servant. You're waiting to do something. When the gospel has already called you to go and to move and to do whatever that may be in that room, just go do it. And if you do it wrong, so what? <laughs> just, just go do. Just go love. Just go serve. Just go help. One day Jesus turned to his disciples and this is what he said to them. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for you. And he did not give his life as a ransom for you so that you could casually volunteer at the church if you get a few spare minutes or a few spare dollars. That's not the call of the gospel. Paul told the church at Galatia this, I have been crucified, executed, killed with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, Paul's saying, it's no longer my money. It's no longer my time. It's no longer my job. It's no longer my career. It's no longer my family. It's no longer my interest. It is now all to Jesus. I 
surrender all. All. When Paul calls us to look out for the interest of others, what he's really calling us to do is to be a servant. Thomas Constable gave a a difference of opinions between a helper and a servant. He made kind of a list of comparisons. I'm I'm just going to throw out a a few of them that he shared. A helper helps others when it is convenient. A servant serves others when it is inconvenient. A helper helps people that he or she likes. A servant serves even people that he or she dislikes. A helper helps when he or she enjoys the work. A servant serves even when he or she dislikes the work. So are you an occasional helper or are you a consistent servant? Are you living as an occasional volunteer at church and in the community? Or are you living a consistent life as a crucified follower of Jesus, a crucified servant of Christ? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let's think about you for a second, okay? Do you like being ignored? Do you like when people don't pay attention to you? Do you like when people say that that your job and what you do doesn't matter? Do you like when people make you feel like you don't matter? Stories told of a student in nursing school. One day, a professor gave them a pop quiz, and this was the last question on the quiz. What is the first name of the woman who cleans the school? The nursing student thought it was some kind of joke. Another one of the students said, hey, we aren't going to get counted off for that on this quiz, are we? And the professor said, yeah, you will. And then the professor goes on to say this. In your careers, you will meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and say hello. That nursing student said they never forgot that lesson. And they made sure they went and found out what the name of the cleaning lady was. Dorothy. And then that student gave us a question. Who is the Dorothy in your life that needs your attention. Who's your Dorothy? Who is the Dorothy at work? Who is the the Dorothy in your breakfast joint? Who is the the Dorothy at the doctor's office? Who's the Dorothy maybe even in the church? Who's that person that you've seen, don't really know their name? Who is your Dorothy? Who, Who is that person that that before you leave this campus today, that you can go out of your way just to say, hey, let me introduce myself. And if nothing else, just to know their name and to say hello. This is what Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You may have seen the the meme or the t-shirt that says second place is first loser. Someone has wisely turned that stupidity on its ear, and and they've said that that really when you look at Christianity, the notion is you should be willing to be third. You should almost remove yourself completely 
just so you can be sure that you can be the servant to others that you need to. And, and let me just say this. When you make yourself third, God abandons you and leaves you and forsakes you and quits being your shepherd, right? <laughs> no. When you become third, the showers of blessings of heaven target your life because it's what God's called us to do because it's what Jesus did for us. What's at least one motivation for us to do any of this? Paul gives us one, Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, in Christ, a person's story changes. That person goes from the everlasting horror of sin and hell and death to the everlasting happiness of joy and peace and heaven. See, the story changes. And that change in the story becomes a significant motivation for what you do toward others. H.A. Ironside told the story of his mother taking him to a, a business meeting of Christians. Somewhere in this business meeting, there began to be a, a bit of an argument over something, and it, and it kind of, you know, kind of kicked it up a little bit. And, and before long, there was a, a man there who's pounding his fist down and saying this, I don't care what the rest of you do. All I want is my rights. There was an old Scottish man in the meeting and he spoke up and he said, your rights, brother, is that what you want? If you had your rights, you'd be in hell. And he said this, the Lord Jesus didn't come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs and he got them. Now, I don't know if I'm understanding that old Scottish man correctly, but I'm thinking that probably what he meant was that I was a wrong, and you were a wrong, and Jesus didn't come to get rights. He came to get wrongs. He came to seek and save the wrongs. He came to seek and save the lost, people like me and people like you. So, if you used to be a wrong, but now you've been made right with God. If according to the scriptures, you used to be dead in your sin, but now you have been made alive in Jesus Christ. If you used to be a just and right child of hell, but now you are a justified and righteous child of heaven, then, do not merely look out for your own interest, but look out for the interest of others. Why? Well, because we've been called to. We've been called to move. We've been called to move out. We've been called to look out for others. And why should we do that? Well, friend, that is exactly what Jesus has done for you. And love that amazing and love that divine, it demands our baseball salary. It demands our Sunday. 
It demands our free time. It demands our me time. It demands our life, our soul, our all. He is worth it. He is worth it.